I want to ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, please. I've been thinking about what to share. This is the run-up to Christmas. I understand that. I feel like what the kids have brought already has been such an amazing preaching of the gospel story through Christmas. I felt rather that God has been speaking to me in my life over this last year in the most amazing way. And as I was having my devotions this week out of Philippians, I felt God just give me some key th- keys for my, that I wanted to share with you. But I think it's been an amazing year. And I think it's, it's important that as we come to the end of the year, we do look back and take stock. I think it's good to take stock of what God is doing, what God is saying. I think it's good every family should do that. At least say, well, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? What have you said? What do you still want to say? And there have been some key markers for me on this year, which I think God has done in this church. And one of them is simply this. He's brought us back to the centrality of the gospel of Jesus. The simple message that Jesus died for us. That is what we proclaim above all things. And we want to root ourselves more and more in that. Rooted in Christ, planted in family, and fruitful in life. That is what we feel like God is saying. Holds us the, the whole thing together. And that's been something of a, a theological journey which I've tried to share with you as we've gone along. And, and as God has been saying, He wants to be the full affection of our hearts, that Jesus should be the full affection of our hearts, the full passion of our hearts. I felt to do a series recently on idols. Because if Jesus is the full affection of our hearts, then every idol needs to be torn down, surely. And everything that exalts itself above Christ in our hearts needs to be dismantled. And so we had to look at some things like money, sex, power, all those kind of things. Because those are all things that compete for the affection of our hearts. And ultimately, Jesus wants the full affection of our hearts. He's jealous for that. And so this, this week, as I was just um, reading Philippians chapter 1, this one little verse jumped out at me and really just into my heart. Where Paul says he's in jail in in, in the Philippi, in, in the jail, and he says this little thing. He says, "What has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me really has happened and served to advance the gospel." And I had to say, Lord, can I truly say that everything that's happened to me this year, I can see from that point of view that all things work together for those who are called and those who love Him, and all things work together for good. Romans chapter 8. Can I really say that I believe that with all of my heart? And I feel like God did some work in me, and I came to that place of saying, yeah, Lord, thank you for everything that's happened this year. The good, the indifferent, the bad, because truly you are sovereign, and truly these things have happened to me in order to fully fashion the gospel more fully in my heart, mind, and soul. And I want to share that with you this morning and trust it will minister to you as we celebrate Christmas together. I'm going to read uh, Philippians chapter 1. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And here we go. From the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with our overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love those apostolic greetings. Always grace and peace to you. Always speaking over the people, speaking over the church, the good blessings of God. He says further, I thank my God in my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you are, are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I want to look at that phrase. 
And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I will look at that phrase as well. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. You want to look at that phrase as well. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's amazing when you read the scripture from the point of view of the gospel, how many times the gospel is mentioned. I mean, we've read five or six verses. He's mentioned the gospel four times. It's amazing. The defense of the gospel. You are partakers of me with grace in the gospel. Um, There's partnership in the gospel. And he says further, it's my prayer that your love might abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then this key phrase, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) They see his suffering. It doesn't make them timid. It makes them more bold. Some, and he goes on, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether, I, in, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What an amazing attitude. In all things, I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Yes, I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life, by life, or by death. And this amazing statement again. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In other words, whether I live, I live for Christ. Whether I die, I die for Christ. It doesn't matter to me. And then he goes on, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus. That is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that... In me, you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And then he concludes with this encouragement. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I am absent, I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for faith of the gospel and not frightened by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you, you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for this chapter. I want to thank you that it's so a uh, great encouragement to us. I want to just pray now, Lord, as I share these few things, that you'd root them in our hearts. And Holy Spirit, I want to pray that you would do what I cannot do, 
I want to pray, Lord, that you'd come and root us further and further in truth, that, we might, that Jesus might grow larger and larger in our hearts and minds, that our lives would be more and more fully affected by who he is and the glory of what he's done for us on the cross. And I pray that simply in Jesus' name, I pray that every single person here this morning would leave knowing you better, knowing you more fully, more intimately, and having a desire to know more of you in their lives. And I simply pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look at that little phrase, partnership in the gospel, to start, because it's such a key phrase, this thing that Paul keeps on saying, I'm so thankful that you're partnering with me in the gospel. I want to say, first of all, that partnership in the gospel is a good partnership. It's a very good thing to be partners in the gospel. And in fact, I don't, it doesn't matter who you are, the least of us has partnership with the greatest of whoever apostles are or have been. That's what the scripture says. From the first day that you are born again, those who sincerely receive Christ and embrace the gospel fully have partnership from the very first day. Isn't that an amazing thought? That you and I are in partnership with all of those that have gone before us, the great apostles like Paul and Peter. Doesn't matter if you feel like you are the least of anybody, we have partnership because of the fact that we are born into the same family. What an amazing God we serve. Salvation that we share is a common salvation. That's what 2 Peter 1 verse 1 says. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Equal standing before the cross. But secondly, if we're going to have partnership in the gospel, we have to understand what the gospel is. And I just, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to try and uh, clarify what is the gospel. Well, I want to just say again, simply before you this morning, that the only assurance that you and I have when we get to heaven one day is that Jesus died for our sins. That is it. That's the assurance that you and I have. Jesus died for our sins. That gives us present assurance right now and future assurance because of what he has done. It's got nothing to do with what we have done. It's a free gift. It's a free gift of grace. We don't deserve it. I've said this before. I want to say it again. Our confidence in justification is that Jesus died for our sins. Our confidence and our privilege in being sanctified. Sanctification. What did Michael Eaton say? He said, those who walk by the Spirit deliberately fulfill the law accidentally. When you are living with Jesus in the throne room of your heart, you will not murder, rape, and steal. You will not have any desire for those things because you are walking by the Spirit. And the Spirit is always leading us closer and more intimately to a place of relationship with Jesus. That's it. We don't have to put laws on people. Grace frees us from that, and we walk by grace because we get to walk by the Spirit, and we want to walk by the Spirit. This is good news. This is the news of gospel. There's no condemnation for you. Can anyone say amen to that? That is the gospel. No condemnation for you. I said it means, doesn't mean no accusation. The devil accuses us day and night before the throne room of God, but we have a heavenly advocate, Jesus who dismisses the charges, throws them out of court, and says, they do not apply to my son, my daughter, because I see the blood of Christ on you. No accusation. It doesn't mean no tribulation. It doesn't mean you're not going to have hard times. I think that is an intensely middle-class, white, Western perspective of the gospel, that to be a Christian means you're not going to ever suffer or have problems, and you are going to just cruise through life. 
with all of your heart's desires, getting married when you want to, having the babies that you want to, going from a smaller to a slightly bigger, and then a massive house, getting promoted, shares on the stock market. What a white middle class view of what the gospel is. It ain't that. And the gospel's being preached in China, the gospel's being preached in India to people that have nothing. And it's bringing release. Man, I'm passionate about that. Sorry if I'm being a little bit loud this morning. We have to preach a gospel that is true not only in London, but it's true in Calcutta. Can't preach one gospel here. And that's why Paul says, this is my gospel. He owns it. He says, any gospel that is not my gospel is not the true gospel. We preach Christ. We preach Jesus crucified for our sins. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Doesn't mean there won't be any tribulation, hard things. It doesn't mean there'll be nothing, there's nothing in us that deserves condemnation. Of course there is. We know that we deserve death. But that's not the ruin of us because God sees the blood of Christ. It doesn't mean there's no discipline. I said this a couple of weeks ago. God disciplines his sons. It's proof of your sonship that this God's hand is, of discipline is on your life. It's proof that he loves you. And then Romans 8.28. What a glorious verse. All things. All things work together for those who are called according to his purpose and love him. All things. Can I be cheeky, Werner? All things. Even an accident. All things. If God is sovereign, anything cannot happen outside of his sovereign purpose for our lives. It's impossible. Else he's not sovereign. We're going to get there. I read this little thing from Edward Fisher this morning, uh, not this morning, this week. He wrote a book called The Marrow of Modern Divinity. It's a very fancy title, but this really impacted my heart. Because you know, one of the things I've battled with in my life is accusation. From my own conscience, from other people, from the devil. And, and accusation always puts a load on you and says, you should have done this. Why didn't you do that? You spoke like that, you shouldn't have. And you live in this constant, oh God, just help me. Have you ever felt like that? Okay, some of you have. And here, he says this remarkable thing. He says, neither let your accusing conscience, nor Satan, the accuser of the brethren, hinder you any longer from Christ. For though they would accuse you of pride, of infidelity, of covetousness, of lust, of anger, hypocrisy, whatever, though they would accuse you of all these things, what can they do? They can make no worse of you than a man who is a sinner or the chief of sinners or an ungodly person and so consequently such as one as Christ came to save. Hallelujah. All those things I'm accused of. I'm guilty. And you know what it means? It means I come boldly to the cross of Christ and I find my rest. I find forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Everything that has been said, yes, Lord, it's true. I'm a hypocrite. I don't always say the right thing. I might not be the best father. I might not be the best friend. But at the cross, I find release. Amen. What can the devil do? Who can accuse when you are at the foot of the cross and you say, yes, Lord, all those things are true, but in you I find release. Forgiveness for my sin. Yes, I'm a sinner. I've always said, I'm a criminal under my own hat. 
I'm a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I am a sinner saved by grace. That is it. Partnership. What does this thing of partnership mean? Well, it means communion with each other, and it means com- communication of the gospel. There's this wonderful word, koinonia, that we've, we've spoken about before, which means fellowship, partnership. And that means, uh, I want to say that not only do we have this wonderful koinonia in the love of Christ, in uh, the promises of the gospel with each other, but koinonia also includes proclaiming those truths to the nation and proclaiming those truths into families and communities. That is part of partnership. Let's take every opportunity. Galatians talks about us placarding Christ like a big poster. We boldly lifted up Jesus and portrayed him to you clearly. That's what Paul says in Galatians. We we made it easy for people to see Jesus. Anything that gets in the way of Jesus must be removed. That's what religion is. Anything that obscures Jesus, let it be torn down in our lives and how we present the truth of, gospel, of the gospel. Amen? I'm sorry, I'm a bit croaky. Can I have some water? And then Paul says after that, he says this amazing thing. He says, my confidence is that Christ will complete the good work that he has started. Christ will complete it. I want to say this. It could be just a general statement about the church because through the preaching of the gospel, churches are birthed. So Paul could be saying, I'm confident that the church will carry on and it will, the work of the church will be completed. I believe that is true. I believe passionately in the church. What God has started in the church will stand till the end of time. The mystery of the church will, will reach its climax and completion when Jesus comes back and takes us back to him. The church is built on a rock. The church is built on the, the apostles and the prophets, the foundation. Thank you very much. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I believe all those things. Passionately? Absolutely. But this verse here is speaking about something personal. What Paul is saying, his confidence is this, that God's work of grace that he started in your life, he too will complete that work of grace. That's what he's saying. I want to say, like I said about partnership, the work of grace in your life is a good work. It's the best work possible. God transforming you from the inside out, making you more and more like Jesus. It's the work that, could, that produces the greatest good that could ever be produced in you is produced by the grace of God in your life. That's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Secondly, it's God who begins the work. I want to say this. The Bible says again, in Colossians and different places, it says, you are and I were dead in our sin. Can anyone give me a good definition of dead? What does dead mean? No life. Not one breath. Not one thing you can do for yourself when you are dead. We were watching this movie last night called, what was it called? We were soldiers. Man, I was so, whew, I couldn't go to sleep. It's about the Vietnam War and uh, this, this amazing battle that is the first battle of the Vietnam War. And man, when you are shot as a soldier and you are lying there and you, there's no life in you, there's nothing you can do for yourself. You are dead. So the scripture says, we are dead in our sins and our transgressions. Meaning there's nothing of ourselves that we could ever do to bring ourselves to life. Nothing. And while we were in that dead state, 
the Christ of glory that the kids so wonderfully talked about this morning. While we were dead like that, He loved us completely, perfectly in that moment. And because of His love for us, when He died for us, our spirits that were dead, He breathes life into us, and what was dead becomes alive. Man, that is the gospel. That is good news. God starts that. God completes that. The work that is begun will not be completed here on earth. While we are still imperfect, while we are still being sanctified, we will always have more in our lives that God wants to change by His grace. Always. And then one day, the Scripture says, Jesus will come back, and in a moment, in an instant, we will be glorified, and in that moment, we will be instantaneously not need any more sanctification because we go and be with Christ, and we are perfect with Him in eternity. That's what I'm living for. Huh? No more words that are going to bring sadness to people. No more irritations. No more nothing. Just worshiping Jesus in glory. That's good news. And then Paul uses this phrase. He says, you are partakers with me of grace. Well, there's this practical stuff that happened in the, in the, in the jail where they were looking after Paul's needs. And in that sense, they were suffering together with him. They were partakers of grace in that way. And what he's trying to say is that when we look after others like that, when we share in the sufferings of people, when we, we, we share in that kind of intimacy with them, we receive and share in the blessing and the reward that they also receive as we share in each other's burdens. And the encouragement to me out of this verse is that we are all prepared and ready as they were, to take up their position, whatever place we find ourselves, whatever our situation, whatever gift we have, whatever understanding we have, and we are those that contend and defend the gospel. Can I say something that I, I believe absolutely with my heart, the whole of my heart, and I'm not a, 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 I don't think I'm a, a person who's not optimistic, but I want to say this, that I think increasingly in the Western world, we are going to find ourselves in a position where we are persecuted for what we say we believe as Christians. I believe the time is fast coming upon us. God is wants people who can stand and contend for the faith of the gospel. And what is Paul, his response to these people, he thinks well of them as they share together with him in this persevering in their faith. And then I love this phrase. In the, in the King, jo- King James Version, Paul says this. He says, For my God is my record, how greatly I long for you in the bowels of Jesus. Uh, the English Standard Version is a bit more trans- translated more, more politely. It says, I long for you with the affection of Jesus, which is also beautiful. But I love that thing, in the bowels of Christ. It's like so, uh, it's so deep. He longs for them. There's this deep affection because of this partnership that they have. Can you notice another thing, please? He's, not, he's careful to point out to them. He doesn't want them to be offended that he's suffering. Don't you think that's an amazing thing? He doesn't want them to be offended. Now he's a prisoner in Rome. That might be a stumbling block for some people. They might think, this is the great apostle. I mean, if his gospel is true, if his doctrine is true, why is he in jail? Why, why, surely God would bless those that serve him. Why is this man in jail? And he's careful not to let that get in the way and, and undermine what God is doing through, through his life. And this is the core of my message this morning, and I, I really want to try and land here if I can. 
All that has happened to me is for the sake of the gospel. All that has happened to me is for the sake of the gospel. Paul has suffered by his enemies, those that want him in jail, those who are enemies of the gospel. But ultimately, he says in verse 12 that those that follow him are not discouraged by that. And what it's actually doing is making them more bold to stand for the truth of the gospel and to proclaim it even more fervently and passionately. Surely that should be our response too when there's suffering in our lives. That we push into Jesus the truth of who Jesus is. And there's this strange chemistry. I want to use that word. Strange chemistry of God's sovereignty in our lives. And here we see the sovereignty of God in Paul's life. This great event that should have been a catastrophe, that he is in prison so that he cannot preach. God, in his sovereignty, turns that thing and it becomes something that is a weapon in his hand. And the gospel is preached even more fervently by those that are outside of the jail. Man, that's incredible. God is sovereign. Can I say to you, God is sovereign over your life. Can I just do a little thing? I want to talk about the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, and the love of God. My friends, if we're not rooted in those three things, if you're not preaching the goodness of God to yourself, the love of God to yourself, the sovereignty of God to yourself, when problems come, you are going to be shaky. If you don't really believe that in your Noah, I like to say, you know in your Noah, there's something that you cannot describe, but you just know that something is true. It comes as a revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nearly every page of this scripture points to the sovereignty of God. His supreme power over all things. Every detail of your life, every detail of my life. The decisions of those in governments who have influence over us. The lifespan of the little cockroach or the, or, or the sparrow. God has that in his hand. The threat of swine flu. God's sovereign over the threat of swine flu. Today's weather. God is sovereign over that. Every second of human history that passes takes place under the overall umbrella of the sovereign hand of God. I want to ask you this morning if you believe with all your heart that that is true. And if you don't, that's okay, but let's move towards allowing God by the Spirit to make revelation, bring revelation to our hearts. That is a foundation of how, of God, what God wants to do in our lives. But that means, if what I'm saying is true, that means not one single circumstance in the universe or the multiple billions of galaxies that there are can happen outside of God's sovereign control. That's what it means. And if that's not true of God, then I want to say, I agree, if, I would agree with you in saying this, that if that is not true, God cannot be trusted. How can we trust a God who's not in control of things? Then you're always doubting, oh, well, is this really your will for my life? If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, there will always be that element of doubt. And what does Psalm 135 say? It says, I know the Lord is great, that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. God is sovereign. I want to convince you of that this morning if you don't already believe it. Secondly, I want to convince you that God is wise. What's the use of having a sovereign God who's not wise? Because then if he's not wise, he could make a mistake. Who wants to serve a God that makes mistakes? 
You never know where your foundation is. Every page of the scripture also points to the wisdom and the infinite wisdom of God. He looks down from eternity. He looks down from all those billions of galaxies to your problems, your plans, and your prayers. And he has perfect, perfect perspective over your life. He does. Absolutely 2020 vision for every single one of us. Can I assure you this morning that God is never confused? He's never worried. He's never anxious about the course of the world or the course of your future. God never makes mistakes. He doesn't. He just doesn't. It's impossible. Why? Because He is sovereign and He is wise. And yesterday, God was in control of the universe perfectly. Today, He is in control of the universe perfectly. And tomorrow, when you and I wake up, God will still be in perfect control of the universe. And you're in my life. And I want to say that knowing that God is wise is also absolutely vital. Because if God was sovereign but not wise, we also could not trust Him. Because then, we'd always be worried that God had made a mistake. That ultimately we know better than he does. And they quoted it this morning. From Genesis to Revelation. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways above yours. And my thoughts above yours. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your path. Amen? Lastly, not only is God sovereign and wise, He's also good. Man, that is a foundation. If you want to walk a Christian life, you've got to be rooted in the goodness of God. A personal revelation in your heart that God is good, not in some abstract way to everybody else, but that God is good to you. God has your best interests in heart. There's nothing about God that is indifferent He is love. He is steadfast. He is full of mercy, full of grace. And the Bible is an amazing story of God's relentless pursuit for you and I to rescue us and to bless people that don't deserve it. This messy thing that the kids were talking about this morning, that's what the Bible is about. That's the story of redemption. God coming to make order out of the mess that we have made and the mess that we have left for our children through sin. That is good news. God is never moody. God's heart towards you, His love towards you doesn't change on the basis of your performance or your circumstances. It's constant. And also, I want to say, if God is sovereign, God is wise, but God is not good... How could you trust him? Because those that are powerful and clever and are not loving are scary people. I want to say we'll live insecure lives constantly if we don't know that God is sovereign, wise, and good. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. I want to encourage you to preach those three things to yourself. Because every morning that you get up, there's a temptation to say, God is not good to me. God doesn't really know what's going on in my heart, my life. 
God's not really sovereign. He's not really wise. You've got to, in a place of prayer, find victory saying, no, God, you are sovereign. And you can only do that for yourself. That's what Paul had come to the place in his life. And while he's writing from that Philippian jail, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, he says this, Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Paul knew it in his Noah. He knew in his Noah that God was good, sovereign, and wise, and that this circumstance in his life was not going to frustrate the purpose of God for his life, but was going to multiply the purpose of God for his life. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And I uh, lastly just want to look at this thing that his imprisonment produced in other people. Job 17, there's a wonderful scripture. It says, the righteous will also hold to this way, and who has, he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Isn't that beautiful? The sense that whatever happens in our lives, we go from strength to strength if we are in Christ. The amazing thing is the follows. The disciples of Paul saw his imprisonment, and that it, they were encouraged by it. They were encouraged by it. It didn't deter them from preaching Christ. It made them more bold. It was like if they were led from the pulpit to the prison, they could endure that with a smile on their face because they knew in the jail they'd have good company in the person of Paul who had just received, was receiving this kind of constant flow of grace from the throne room of God through the life of Jesus. And they, that made them bold. I wonder. I wonder what it would happen in the life of this church if, say, me and Mike... And uh, a couple of other guys that have been helping us lead were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. I, I wonder what our reaction would be. I wonder, would it make us strong? Would it make, would, would, would it make us more bold in our, our, our personal proclamation of the gospel, the truth of Jesus? Or would it produce fear in us and say, oh, God, you've left us. You're not sovereign. Ultimately, they saw that Jesus was a good master for Paul, and that made them fully satisfied and persuaded by what they saw. What was the potential to become an enemy for the gospel became an ally, and the confidence gave them courage, and their courage preserved them from the power of fear. My friends, that's the only thing that is going to preserve your life from the power of fear, is your revelation of Jesus, the revelation of the goodness of God to you. I've got too much here. Let me just try and land. Why does Paul say in the final half of that chapter, why does Paul say that he rejoices that the gospel is preached regardless of who's preaching it and why they're preaching it? Because he makes it clear, he says, there's some are preaching the gospel out of spite, to spite me, and some are, are, uh, are preaching the gospel out of envy. But whether they do that out of spite or envy from a good motive, I rejoice that the gospel is being preached. Don't you think that's an amazing statement? I think that is an amazing statement. Well, why does he say that? I think there's just a couple of, two things I want to say. First of all, 
That he knew the only way to salvation was through the gospel of Jesus. He knew the only way to salvation is through the gospel of Jesus. You know, when John the Baptist saw the coming of Jesus, he said the same thing. He said, this joy of mine is now complete. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. And when you get saved, one of the first results of being saved is that you're happy that the gospel is being preached, regardless of how it makes you look. If someone else preaches the gospel better than you, that's cool. You rejoice because the gospel is being preached because you know it's the only way to salvation. And secondly, Paul knew that all of this was for the glory of Christ. That's the only reason he could rejoice. And surely the, the, the true desire of every Christian, every one of us, should be that Christ is magnified. Christ is glorified. Christ becomes bigger. His name becomes more and more glorious. And not only that outwardly, but secondly, that Christ in us becomes more magnified, more fully formed, so people can see Jesus more and more clearly in us. Surely that's the desire of every Christian. And it's for the glory of Christ, thirdly, that we proclaim him. It's for his glory, not for ours. That's why we serve him. That's why we give our lives um, gladly. That's why we do freely, because it's, it's for the glory of Jesus, not our glory. And I want to say, if we aim at the glory of Christ, we'll begin to see the glory of Christ in our lives and the glory of Christ in the church. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel. What Paul is trying to say is if we believe in the truth of the gospel, then let's submit to the gospel. Let's believe in the promises of the gospel. Let's believe in what the gospel says for our lives. And as a result of that, holiness and faith will be a byproduct of what God is doing in us. That's what he's saying. Only let your life be worthy of the gospel. God does things from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's what Paul is saying. And then he concludes. He says, let me hear of you that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. You know, that's perhaps a word that people don't like because then they say that, con- that connotates working. And we're not working for our salvation. But we stand, we strive, we contend for the gospel to be preached, for people to be saved. We give our passion, our enthusiasm, we give every energy of our body to that thing. It's a good thing to do. Can I just say one last comment? When he says contend for the gospel, I love what he says because he says not only do do we do that, but he says contend together for the gospel. Ah, he doesn't say contend with each other for the gospel. In other words, me against you and you against me and we're all competing for the gospel. No, he says contend together for the preaching of the gospel. There's unity. There's a one-heartedness. That represents the gospel in, 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 in essence because what is the, the truth of the gospel? That in Christ there's no man, there's no woman, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no race. We are all one in Christ. And surely if we are one in Christ, we contend as one man for the truth of that gospel with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Amen. I want to encourage you. Stand firm. Contend for the faith in your own life, contend for the gospel as you preach through your life into your community, into your family, into your relatives. This Christmas time, it's an amazing time to proclaim this messy story of Jesus coming, salvation for all mankind. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? 
and then we're going to go and enjoy some coffee together. Father, I want to thank you for the truth of your word to us. I want to thank you, Lord, for what the kids presented this morning in such a wonderful way, simplicity of what the gospel message is, that Jesus came for a world that was dead in sin, and he came to make that world alive. We thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the gift of salvation that comes to us. And Lord, as we remind ourselves of that this Christmas, I pray that the wonder of of your redemption plan for all of history would not be lost just because we celebrate this every single year. Lord, I thank you for the time that we will have with our families. I thank you for all that we will eat and drink and celebrate together. A wonderful time. But God, at the heart of that, let us never, ever lose the wonder that ultimately we celebrate you, the God of the universe, coming and humbling himself and choosing to live as a man, that your plan of redemption might be unfolded for our lives. We are so grateful, Lord. Lord, I pray that we not shy away from difficult things that might come. I thank you for taking us through this year. I thank you for taking every single family in this church through the credit crunch, and you've provided for every single one of us. We are so grateful, Lord. We say thank you. We thank you that we can know you. We thank you for the power of your spirit in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your grace upon us that has been transforming us from one degree of glory to another. We are so grateful, Lord, and we bless you this morning. You are good, you are sovereign, you are wise, and you are always loving. And we thank you for your hand in our lives, your hand at work that moves us ultimately more and more into your plan and purpose for us. We rejoice in these things, in Jesus' name. Amen.